having to do with the lesson tonight. If not, it was perfect leading into it because verse number three, and I'm going to look at it again, the words of it. Be strong and courageous. Consider his law. Regard it with reverence. Perform it with awe. Be careful to follow all God has decreed, for then he will bless you and you will succeed. Tonight I want us to talk a little bit about the idea of following God's law. It's a very simple lesson, but it grows out of a Bible study I had a couple of weeks ago, and one that was very much like uh, many, many other Bible studies over the years, questions and the comments and so forth. And to paraphrase, a person basically said, you know, when someone visits your church, one of the first things that they take notice of, and they didn't, I don't think they use that language, but that they see or whatever, is how exact or how precise that you try to be. And I, I believe that is so. I think when a person, I know that was the case for me, I didn't, uh, I, I, a good part of my childhood, I was three doors down literally from a church of Christ, but I didn't know anything about them. And um, all I'd ever heard of them was, you know, the sign that I went down from time to time and rode my bicycle around. So, you know, just didn't know much about it. But I know that when I began studying and when I began attending church services that I was impressed with that. Um, I had, in many respects, gone to church most of my childhood uh, off and on until I reached, uh, you know, into my teenage years and I stopped going. But... I was impressed with the fact that people were concerned with what the Bible says. The Bible, oddly enough, um, you know, being part of church and everything else, though the Bible was always part of it, to be sure, it was never the primary focus, never something that was really emphasized. And uh, anyway, I won't go further into that. But just the idea of how precise, how exact, um, you know, that people try to be with what does the Bible say, uh, the accuracy for what you do, for how things are done, etc., etc. So this afternoon I thought we'd just go back, and this is going to be one of the simplest lessons probably that I'll preach all year, but I thought we'd go back and just remind ourselves of the reasons why, and we'll um, build upon the passage that was just read for us a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 8, where God said to Moses, you see that you do it exactly like I showed you to do it. And I want us to go back and look at a couple of passages that really illustrate that. I called the lesson, if you picked up an outline, you saw that I called it exactitude. That may not be a word you use in common everyday language, but if you look up a dictionary definition of it, it is the state or quality of being accurate and correct. That's Merriam-Webster's. Another uh, dictionary entrance would say it is the insistence upon or of accuracy. I think that's exactly right. Exactitude always makes me think of the attitude of being exact, but it is a state or quality of insisting on things being accurate, being done in the right way. Sometimes, as members of the church, we may get together and we may haggle over things, we may back and forth discuss, I think it's this way, I think it's that way, but what we try to have in common is the Bible says we're very much a people who insist on things being accurate. Go with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 6. I've long been impressed with this passage because, uh, for this reason, and germane to this discussion, because 
there's a lot of discussion that has been in my lifetime anyway of the grace of God and how that in the evangelical idea or ideal there is that the grace of God just kind of is a big umbrella and it covers how far short we come from God. Now, I'm not saying there's everything wrong with that idea. I think Scripture teaches that to a degree. None of us are perfect, etc. But when one begins to, as I was saying this morning in the lesson, settle for being less than accurate, that's dangerous. And that's not what God wants. Never for us to settle. It's interesting when you look at Genesis 6 that the first time the Bible ever discusses grace, and grace is an idea again, it falls into that whole discussion of God just kind of under the umbrella and all of that. But the first time God ever uses the term grace, it is about a person who stood out of all the people in the world for doing what was right. I want you to look with me at Genesis 6 for a moment. I'm not going to read everything, but you remember the story here, how that there was a time when even God's people began to intermarry and fall away from God, so much so that it got down to the point, if you look at verse 5, that God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that the imaginations of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Some people would say that's kind of almost, you know, a commentary on modern society, and I say, no, I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> you know, we haven't gotten to the point where God looks down and every thought or every imagination of thoughts that people have is just only evil continually. But it was in Noah's day. And yet, if you notice in verse 6, and here it would be where God regretted. We talked about repentance. Well, this is a word for regret here. God even regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he grieved him at his heart. And so, verse 7, the Lord said, I'm going to destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth. I'm going to destroy man and beast, and so for all the animals that are on the land, I'm going to destroy. But verse 8, and here is our word, but Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, it's not hard to understand why. Because if you go on to read the very next verse, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. He was a just, a righteous man. He was perfect in his generations. He walked with God. And it goes on to describe the state of war. Apparently, this was world war. Everybody into it. Everybody doing wrong. But again, with Noah, look at chapter 7. And verse 1, the Lord said unto Noah, You come and all your house into the ark, for you have I seen righteous before me in this generation. It's not hard to understand why God would look with favor upon Noah, but understand why. He's looking with favor upon Noah because Noah is a righteous man. And that means that he did things correctly, accurately, if you will. Even when the rest of the world around him is not doing things like they're supposed to do them. He is not following suit. Remember some of the things we were saying this morning about how people, those different groups, and some of them looking around and seeing the, you know, how other people were doing. And instead of saying, hey, let's do it that way. Everybody else is doing it, let's do it too. Noah was a person who tried to do things correctly, accurately. They didn't always manage to do that. We know he sinned. We know that for a couple of reasons. The Bible reveals a great sin that he committed. The Bible says all people sin. But he was a good man, and he tried to do things right. And when God is going to save him, you'll notice beginning in verse 14, as we look at this example, Noah, make an ark, and then notice all of the instructions that he gives him. I want you to make an ark because I want to save you, and I want to save your household. 
But I want you to make this ark exactly like I tell you to make it. I want it made out of this kind of wood. Gopher or gopher wood. Acacia wood. Shatim wood. Some of your translations say. Whatever it was. I don't even know what it was. But the point is, God wanted it made out of this particular wood and Noah would have understood that. Notice how he goes on to say, as he tells him, I want you to pitch it just so. In other words, line it with tar inside and out. And verse 15. I want you to make it so long and so wide and so high, exact measurements that he gives him. And then I want a window here, verse 16, and I want a door there, verse 16. In other words, I want you to make this ark exactly like I want it. He goes on with that, and he talks about the collection of the animals. And if you'll look at all of this, one thing you come away with is exactitude. In other words, God is saying, Noah, I want you to be in a mindset over the next hundred years as you build this ark, and the mindset I want you to have is you do everything exactly like I tell you to do. Why do we concern ourselves so much with the details? Isn't the important thing, a person would say, you know, the important thing is we love everybody. You're right. It is important. It is of great importance. And if we don't love God and we don't love other people, then no matter how wide you make an ark or how long or anything else, it won't matter at all. But why are we so concerned with the exact, precise measurements, details as God has given? Because that's what He's always done. God has always given details. And God has always meant for you to stick to the details. Noah, you're righteous. And I'm going to save you. You're exactly the kind of person that I want in a world filled with people that I grieve over. That I'm sorry I ever made. But if I'm going to save you, I'm going to save you exactly, precisely, according to what I say. And if you look at verse 22, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Exactly. There are many stories like this, but another one that impresses me of being very real and timeless is in 2 Kings. And I want you to go over with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. Now we'll spend just a few minutes here on this story, but... I say a few minutes, I I plan to spend about 15. So, anyway, as we look at this story, when we see this, we are talking about, and just to set it up very briefly... We're talking about after God's people have already come into the promised land, in fact, after they've already divided into the northern and southern kingdom, we're talking about roughly the 800s B.C. And there is a man named Naaman in 2 Kings 5. And if you'll read the first verse with me. Now, Naaman was captain of the host of the king of Syria. So he's a military commander in the Syrian army. He's very successful at it. He was a great man with his master, the king, of course, and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Again, that's, and we won't get off into that tonight, but it shows you the working of God in nations and, and all of this kind of thing. Well, Naaman had been given victories by God as the military commander. But it goes on to tell you he was also a mighty man in valor, a very courageous man, exactly what you would expect a great soldier to be. And then it tells you at the end of verse 1, but he was a leper. And so when we look at this story, when we're introduced to this story, we see this man that by the world's standards is everything you'd want to be. I mean, he's successful. It's all going well for him. He's got the victories, which is what, you know, military commanders need to have and so forth. He is, uh, 
respected, as it were, by his leader, by his superiors. And yet the problem is he's got the worst disease of the day. He's got leprosy. Now, in his course of battles, triumphs, etc., etc., there had come to be in the house of Naaman a young Israelite girl. And let's just read a few verses and set that up. It says, And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid or a little girl. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, of course taking notice of the leprosy, she said to her mistress, I would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would receive him, or he would rather recover him, if I can get the word out, of his leprosy. What she's basically saying, you know, if my master Naaman were down in Israel and he were with the prophet, and we come to find out the prophet is Elisha, God could recover him or heal him of his leprosy. And so it says, and one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said this little girl that's of the land of Israel. And the king of Israel then, well, I'm getting the words all wrong tonight. The king of Syria, verse 5, said, Go to, go and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed. Now notice how everything's being conducted. Very formal. The king of Syria is going to write a letter for his, you know, highly favored general here. And he's going to send a letter of commendation. And the letter's going to go to the Israelite king and all of that kind of thing. So we're going through all the stately formalities that you would expect one to go through. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto you, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman, my servant, to you, but you know, in order that you may recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes. Because the one in power is Syria, you have to understand. And you're getting this letter basically saying, my highly favored general who's been successful against you has leprosy, and I'm sending him down there and sending this letter to you so he can be healed. Now, if you were the king of a defeated nation, and you're receiving this, you're like, why? You know, why would you send him to me? I can't do anything. Am I God? To kill and to make alive that this man, you know, does send unto me to recover a man of leprosy? And so consider, I pray you, he says, and see how he seeks a quarrel against me. In other words, he's just issuing a challenge that, I'm, that he knows I can't meet, and he's trying to start trouble again. Well, that's, none of that's going on, but this is people. And so, verse 8, it was so when Elisha, the prophet, of course, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes that he sent to the king and said, Why have you rent your clothes? Let him come to me, and he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. That's the whole point of miracles, isn't it? I mean, I'm a prophet, and I do miracles to confirm the word I preach. So if there's a miracle that needs to be done, then the dude needs to come to me, and I will heal him, and everybody will know, yep, there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, verse 9, and stood at the door in the house of Elisha, and Elisha sent a messenger unto him. Notice, didn't go out to him, didn't send the king out to him to meet him, to greet him. He sent his messenger, his servant. And he said, here's the message. Go wash in Jordan seven times, and your flesh will come again to you, and you'll be clean. Now that's very simple. Person calls West, person calls me, we meet somebody, we study with somebody. 
Inevitably, the question, if they really want to be saved, they really want to be a Christian, inevitably, the question is going to come around to, what do I need to do? Some fashion or another, we're going to say to the person very simply, you need to obey the gospel. You need to do what the Bible says. You need to do what Jesus has told us to do. And in some way or another, we're going to get across to them. We're going to find out if they believe in Jesus. If they do, great. They're confessing they do. We're going to say to them exactly what I was saying this morning. You need to repent. You need to change your life and be willing to change your life and live your life for the Lord. And you need to be baptized to have your sins washed away. That's a very simple message. It's about as simple as go wash in the Jordan seven times and your leprosy will be gone. And sometimes people hear that and they say, that's it? (laughs) That's all God says? Well, to start. You know, that's all you need to do. And we go through the verses and we show them and they read it and they look at it and they see that that's what people did. And sometimes people say, great, can we do it now? Or when can we do it? And it's very simply done. But there are many other times when someone says, I don't agree with that. I don't believe in that. You know, I thought that you would say to me, and they began to relate whatever it is they thought. Read this passage with me. The messenger delivered that message, go wash seven times, you'll be clean. And the Bible says, Naaman, verse 11, was wroth. He's not just mad. As we say down south, he's real mad. He's very mad. And he went away and he said, behold, I thought. And that's the problem. Because whenever I begin to dream up in my mind what God would have me do rather than what God just act, you know, explicitly, precisely says do, can't you just see Noah back there going, go for wood? I thought oak would be better. Or can't you just see Noah saying, 450 feet long. You think that's enough, God? How about a 600-foot boat? I mean, God gives the exact details, behold, I thought. And you know, the interesting thing to me about Naaman is it really doesn't have to do with dipping himself or immersing himself, depending on your translation, into water. No, notice what he says. I thought he, Elisha, the prophet, will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover me of my lepers. That's not that hard to understand. There are several things that may factor into this, and I want to suggest a couple. One is, this is the military commander of the country that has defeated Elisha's country. And when that kind of situation is going on and such, such a dignitary is coming to your house, you run out there, bow your hand down, and the truth is, if he asks something of you, you do it with all the pomp and glory that shows the respect to the one who is superior to you. I thought he'd come out here and he'd wave his hands around and he'd strike the place and he'd make a big show and he'd call on the Lord, Oh, Lord God, this is Naaman, etc., etc. I thought he'd do that. Man, he didn't even come out. He sent his messenger. And sometimes people are the same way. Someone says, You're telling me that to be a Christian, to have all my sins washed away, what I really need to do is I need to say I believe in Jesus be willing to change my life, but I understand that. I need to do what's right. But you're telling me, be baptized? 
And, and surely I expected something more than that. I expected some great experience. I expected some great feeling would come upon me. Vision that I would have. I've been through all that. Probably you have too. People just not understanding that this simple little thing God wants done, that is so beautiful and so profound, it really is. I mean, it parallels the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. And I can't personally think of anything more beautiful than that. But it's just not enough. And aside from that, there's no personal revelation to me. How many times have I been told, even by people that I really, really love, if God would tell me, you know, Michael, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I know you're showing me in the Bible, but if God would just tell me, if God would show me, and I would say, He's showing me. This is His message. Delivered by His messengers. This is God's Word. Well, so it was with Elisha's messenger. Elisha sent his messenger out there and said, Hey man, this is what God said. Go dip in the Jordan seven times and your leprosy will be cleansed. He's mad at that. It's not enough. It's not enough of a show. It's not enough of pomp and grandeur. It's just not enough. And he goes on to say that. Notice, not only did he expect Elisha to come out and really make over him, but then he goes on, verse 12, and the Jordan? I mean, what about Abana, Farber? Rivers that are in Damascus, and they are beautiful. I mean, the area of Damascus, there, there are parts of it that are beautiful. Never been there, but I've certainly seen it on, you know, in film and so forth. Yeah, you know, I thought maybe those rivers, they're better than all the waters of Israel. Can I just wash in them and be clean? And that's very much like people. Can't I just do so and so and that be enough? I mean, yeah, I understand that's what the eunuch did, and I see that's what the jailer did, and maybe other. But can't I just do so and so? Exactitude. No. Because the point here, and I think this is it, the point never was Gopher Wood, 450 feet, or the River Jordan. And it never was about seven times was a magical number that would heal you as opposed to six or eight. If I understand what's going on, and I think what God is saying, just like God said to Moses in Hebrews 8 verse 5, you see that you do exactly what I told you to do. I was studying with someone the other day, I don't know if Aliyah's here or not, but she and I were, were talking about something. We were talking about little kids and how important it is for a parent to say to little kids, pick your toys up, or whatever. It doesn't have to be anything. But pick your toys up and put them in that box over there in the corner of the room and insist on it. Why? What difference does it make? If you're like I was as a little kid, you look around the room and you say, you know, I think the toys would be better over there, you know? And you might argue the point. It's very important that a parent... I'm not trying to tell you how to be a perfect parent, but I think it's very important that a parent get across to a child the meaning of authority. You have to do what I tell you to do exactly like I tell you to do or there are consequences. Because if you don't teach them that, how do they ever come to understand that that is life? There are things in life that have to be done a certain way or else there are consequences. And how do they ever come to understand when God says something, He really means it, are there consequences? I think the whole point of this story and the Noah story and 
dozens of others just like it. Or God says do it this way. And then it falls on us, the onus, if you will. It falls to us to decide, am I going to do what God said exactly like he said it, or be a Naaman and argue? Well, Naaman argued. Behold, I thought. I don't like what he said. So he turned and he went away at the end of verse 12 in a rage. It is truly amazing how angry people can get over something like this. But his servants came near. And you have to appreciate this. People are watching this and they're seeing how he's acting about it. And so his own servants came near and they spoke to him. They were respectful. My father, if the prophet had bid you do some great thing, you know, go to China, China Naaman, and find, uh, you know, whatever, the uh, Yellow River or whatever it is in China, and dip yourself in that and come back, you know, the thousand plus miles and you'll be healed. If he told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? And so, how much rather then, when he says, wash and be clean, don't you just go down here and dip yourself in the Jordan seven times like the man said and be clean. And however they said it and in whatever way they said it, it cooled him down, as we would say, or cooled him off from his rage. He had to have thought about it and said, you know what, I'm being stupid here. The man said, go dip in Jordan. I've got leprosy for crying out loud. And it's not going away. And that's the way we need to be. I've got sins. And they're not going away unless I do exactly what God says do. And so he went down and he dipped himself seven times in Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came unto him again just like a little child. Exactitude. Do exactly what God says. Whether literally God is speaking to you like he did to Noah in that day or in our day. It's coming through a message, written down. But when the message is from God and He's saying exactly like this, then do it exactly like He says. Because after all, we want the blessings, exactly as the Bible had said. God was extremely precise all through, beginning from the Old Testament. In fact, even beginning in the Garden of Eden. Very precise. You can eat anything in the Garden except that tree over there. The day you eat of that tree, you die. That's precise, exact. God has always been precise, exact. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you can labor, you should, you should labor. But the seventh day I rested, so the seventh day you rest. Every Sabbath day that comes around, week by week, year after year, that's the holy day, keep it holy. God was very precise. And he was very precise about all kinds of things. He was precise about the temple and the articles that were to go in the temple. And even how they were when it was the tabernacle to be transported about. You remember, you know, the Ark of the Covenant that everybody seems to still be so fascinated with today. And the, the rings of gold that were made on the Ark of the Covenant. So that the Kohathites, not just Levites, and not just anybody, but the Kohathites could slip staves through those rings after it was covered up. They wouldn't even be able to see it. And they'd slip those staves through the rings and heft it up on their shoulders and take it to the next place where it was to be taken. They were never to touch it. They were never to look at it. 
They were only to do it exactly, precisely like God said do it. Once the Ark of the Covenant was captured, 2 Samuel 6, and David and a group of people went down to retrieve the Ark, they had a brand new ox cart, they were people from different tribes, etc., and they put it up on the ox cart, and the oxen stumbled, and the thing almost fell off the cart, and Uzzah reached out and steadied it, because we would not want this 600-year-old vessel to bust all over the road. And God killed him. Because God said, accurate, precise, I want it exactly like I tell you I want. So when we come to the New Testament, a person says, is God still that way? Is he still demanding accuracy? Well, we read Hebrews 8. That's the example for you and me. But there are details. Maybe not as many. Maybe God doesn't have the exact number of details about all the things, you know, for example, the dietary laws. You can't eat this animal because its hoof is this way. And you can't eat that animal because it doesn't have scales. And all of those details. Maybe he doesn't have all that anymore. But he does have details. We talked about baptism. We talk about the idea of, you know, the, the Lord's Supper like we took this morning. He wants unleavened bread. He wants fruit of the vine. We can think of all kinds of things that we might like better, that might taste better to us, etc., etc. We might say, I see the sense in having this or that, or it doesn't really matter. The details don't matter. Well, they always have. There's never been a time when the details, the exactitude, did not matter to God. Never. I want to be worshipped on the first day of the week. There's still people debating, does it matter? Does it matter if we change it to Saturday? Does it matter if we change it to Thursday? Does it matter if we do the Lord's Supper on Thursday evening as opposed to Sunday? Well, they did it on the first day of the week. Does it matter if we gather for worship in the middle of the week and forget about Sunday? Because after all, you know, people are now in our society busy on Sunday. It's the one day that they take for their families, etc., etc. Well, God has still given us the details. And He always has. Exactitude. And I believe that if we understand, we're kind of like nails. We can think about it and we can come up with all kinds of reasons why we would change it. I would, I've even heard people use this phrase. If I were God, you know, I would do it this way. Well, you ain't. You know, you're not God. And it's ludicrous. And that's why the servants call Naaman aside and say, man, listen to what you're saying. You know, we respect you and all. But you've got leprosy. And nothing you've ever done or nothing that anybody knows of will you ever be able to do to get rid of the leprosy. But here is someone saying, God says do this and you'll be clean. Why would you not do that? Here I am in my sins. Maybe I've done things that are terrible. Maybe I've done things that I want to be forgiven of. Maybe I really, really, really want to go to heaven when this life is over. Why would I not do exactly? what God says to If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, if you've never obeyed the gospel, we've outlined the simple plan of God. Really what it comes down to is Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to do. Will you do that? 
Be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. Or like we were saying this morning, if you've done that, and you look at your life and you say, I need to rededicate, recommit. You need to start all over. Thankfully, we serve a merciful God who says, that's great. That's what I want you to do. If you need to come for any